Arjo helps create safer and more efficient healthcare environments, from patient handling and mobilization to hygiene and pressure injury prevention. Arjo offers a range of solutions designed to help you navigate the challenges of today's healthcare settings. Learn more about Arjo and their solutions at www.arjo.ca. www.arjo.ca. One of the things that we can do is ensure that people are diagnosed very early in their disease because the goal for every one of us is to live our best life possible. And that shouldn't change because you have a diagnosis of dementia, but often it does. This is Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. More than two-thirds of the people living in long-term care in Canada are living with some form of dementia. Despite its prevalence, Dementia still comes along with a strong stigma and many common misunderstandings. Dr. Rhonda Collins is the Chief Medical Officer at Rivera, a company that owns and operates long-term care homes and retirement homes across North America and the United Kingdom. As a passionate advocate for those living with dementia and their loved ones, Dr. Collins is also a clinical consultant with a number of healthcare systems and is also active with the long-term care clinicians of Ontario. Dr. Collins is here to shed light on the common myths and misconceptions surrounding dementia and the kinds of policy and program changes that are needed to provide better care to our aging population. Dr. Collins, welcome to the show. I have to say, Dr. Collins, Rhonda, I really do want to thank you for your leadership through the pandemic. For the benefit of our listeners, Dr. Collins took a pivotal leadership role with our entire sector uh, just as the pandemic was arriving in Canada. So I think we had a webinar at late February, early March of 2020, where you really set the stage to walk us through what we needed to be thinking of as we prepared for the pandemic and what the implications could have been or and were likely to be for long-term care. We've been through a lot together and you've continued to have a, a passionate voice and been a very strong advocate over the last year and a half. And I really do want to thank you for your leadership. And it's just been such a delight to work with you and come to know you better. So thank you very, very much for, for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Donna. And I, I repeat the sentiment back to you. It's been an absolute pleasure working with you. And I, I think that you have done just an incredible role at advocating for our entire sector and being the voice of calm and reason and being the voice of information and education for all of our long-term care homes. I think uh, everybody in the sector respects you, your knowledge, your expertise, and your advocacy efforts. 
Well, thank you. It's, you're you're very kind and generous. I think it's been tough on all of us, but uh, you know, if anything, I think it really has helped bring us all together. And and it's so great to be here today talking with you. Now that we've been through the pandemic, I think there's a, a far greater awareness of who is in long-term care and who our residents are, not patients, residents, especially the impact of dementia and including what our residents have been through in terms of isol- social isolation throughout the pandemic and the various waves due, due to lockdown. This is a, a very personal issue for me. When I was in my late 20s, I was a respite volunteer for the Alzheimer's Society of Nova Scotia. So I did home respite for two families and then really struggled with it, quite honestly, because I came in uh, near end-stage uh, Alzheimer's and I had no sense of who the people had been. And I felt really challenged by that, only to go home to Ontario and come back to Ontario to see the signs in my father and to support my mother and becoming really the primary caregiver of my father, even going part-time to work because of his dementia. So I've lived the journey and watched unforgettable Ian Rivera's video about uh, Kathy and Ian and, and the work of Stone Ridge Manor in helping the family transition Ian into long-term care. And I, I have to say, I felt it it really um, made me cry because it brought back so many memories for me and our own family experience. So today, I really want to dig in on understanding dementia and hoping that you can take a few moments to talk to us about what is dementia. And I think there was some great lines in in the, the video clip around how it's not about intelligence, but it is invisible and it, and it is frightening and, and uh, really brings out a lot of emotion on all sides. And then some of the common misconceptions around it and why it's misunderstood in society. Perhaps let's start there. Thanks, Donna. Um, so in the interest of transparency, I also have a personal experience with dementia. So I have been doing primary care memory clinics for the past 12 years. And so I have had the opportunity to diagnose a lot of people with dementia. And it is a diagnosis that I really hate to give because I know that it is associated with fear it is associated with the unknown. There is still so much misinformation and stigma surrounding dementia. On a personal level, my grandfather was diagnosed with dementia in his early 70s. He was a very well-educated, very intelligent, spoke five languages, was an Air Force pilot, uh, was a dental surgeon, and was a suave and debonair sort of soul who I watched just change his as as his dementia progressed and it was it it's hard for family members even when you have a knowledge and an understanding about the process it's difficult and i think you know one of the things that we can do is ensure that people are diagnosed very early in their disease because the goal for every one of us is to live our best life possible. And that shouldn't change because you have a diagnosis of dementia, but often it does. We see people self-isolating because they're fearful of talking to other people because they're afraid they're going to say something that's going to give their diagnosis away. And so one of the questions I get most frequently is what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? And so Alzheimer's 
is a type of dementia. And dementia is just an umbrella term that means that you have changes in your cognition. So your ability to think, your ability to plan and sequence and organize, short-term memory, which is the first thing we see with Alzheimer's well, we see people who can tell you what happened to them 40 years ago in great detail, but cannot remember what they had for breakfast this morning. So it's that short-term memory problem. But there are a hundred different types of diseases or changes in the brain that can cause dementia. One of the first things we see is called mild cognitive impairment, which is where there are those cognitive changes, the forgetfulness, the confusion, sometimes some word-finding difficulty, I'm getting lost in your car. As long as it's not associated with changes in your regular day-to-day function, if you can still do all the things you could do before, but you have some memory loss, that's mild cognitive impairment. When it starts impacting on ability to pay the bills, get groceries, do housework, do the normal activities of daily living, that's when you cross the line from mild cognitive impairment into dementia. And it may be Alzheimer's disease. It may be vascular dementia, so somebody who's had a stroke and then has changes in their cognition. Or it may be something like Lewy body or Parkinson's. There's, Like I said, there's a hundred different types. And the reason for the importance, uh, two reasons for the importance in a very early diagnosis Sometimes there are things that cause changes in the brain that are reversible. And so by seeing a specialist and getting appropriate testing, we can determine if there's something that's reversible that we can correct, or if it's something like Alzheimer's disease, we can put things in place to help prevent cognitive decline and help families and loved ones understand what to expect. And again, going back to that concept of helping everybody live the best life they possibly can. You've talked about the the fact there are so many different manifestations of dementia. So could you maybe speak to the, you know, is there a common progression and uh, what leads to the fact that there's such a, a variation in how the disease may present or the behaviors may present? Sure. Um, so I'll use the old adage, if you've met one person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia. Everybody is different. And we know that there are some common threads, generally that, that short-term memory loss, but that is not something you necessarily see in, for example, frontal temporal dementia, where behavioral changes are much more prominent than the the cognitive changes. And so it depends on the diagnosis, which type of dementia it is, how old you are. So age can play a factor um, If as far as the progression of the disease, how quickly it progresses and what type of behaviors you might see, where a person is. So there is definitely um, an increased risk of behaviors that are more responsive. And so when you hear Hear about uh, there's there's different behaviors that are associated with dementia. Wandering is probably the most common and most frequent, and less of a concern if somebody's in a safe environment where they can't sort of elope and get into trouble with traffic or people. But if we create safe environments, then wandering should be allowed to happen. Um, but then there are things like uh, we don't use the word violent in the field. We use or, or aggressive we use the term responsive because what we know about dementia is there's changes in the brain that the person experiencing them is interpreting in a particular way. So you know when I approach you and I'm smiling and I've got a gentle look on my face that I'm friendly and I'm not going to do anything to harm you. 
people with dementia can often misperceive what they see. And so you may be looking at me and seeing somebody from your past who was a threat to you. Uh, there may be something different about my appearance that you're perceiving that others around you aren't. So you're responding to what you're experiencing. And that's where we come up with the term responsive behaviors. And it does it is variable, but there are some predictors for those who are going to have a greater likelihood of having those type of responsive behaviors. But diagnosis, the diagnosis is important because it can help us as a predictor know who might experience those behaviors. And again, and I'm gonna I'm gonna harp on this, I'm gonna go back to the earlier we diagnose, the earlier we can get supports in place. And the important thing about supports is not just for the person experiencing dementia for family and friends as well. Because communication with somebody with dementia is incredibly important. And if you're not communicating properly, you can actually trigger those type of responsive behaviors. So an example I would give, and I've, I've heard people say this so often, I told you that already, mom, don't you remember? Or mom, you've told me this story 10 times. I'm picking on mom. It could be dad. It could be husband or wife. But it can be frustrating to have somebody tell you the same story over and over or ask you the same question over and over. And so by getting resources and education about what's driving those questions and how to respond to those questions, by saying, don't you remember, you can actually trigger that kind of, no, I don't remember that frustration and that agitation that can then lead to those type of behaviors that you're describing. And it was so remarkable to watch Ian and unforgettable Ian uh, not understanding why he was moving into long-term care and the reaction of Kathy and and how she was responding. But, the, you know, the way they were communicating with one another, well, one, it was such a great long-standing relationship and so much love there. But, you know, I think they were very fortunate that after the first lockdown, he was still there. That comment that he was still there, but the impact of masks and social isolation and you know, one thing we did here consistently through the pandemic, uh, when our, our residents were isolated and were in lockdown, those with responsive behaviors not being able to read people's facial expressions because of the masks and the visors. I mean, it could only, I can't imagine what, what it must have been like for those individuals. And, and even today, though there's so much hope today. Dr. Collins highlighted some of the most common misconceptions surrounding dementia and how our perspective of dementia can either be a help or a hindrance to our loved ones. For example, self-isolation and lack of communication can contribute to a worsening of dementia symptoms, while, on the other hand, setting a goal to live your best life despite a diagnosis of dementia, can make for a much more positive experience for everyone. It's also important for us to avoid making sweeping generalizations when it comes to dementia and Alzheimer's, as each case is completely unique depending on the individuals. As Dr. Collins notes, when you've met one person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia. 
because we are just coming out of the pandemic and this has not been a normal time, uh, we know that uh, there may well be other waves. What considerations should families be making around supporting their loved ones with dementia at home, but also say start to think about uh, whether or not it, it may well be time to support the transition of their family member into a long-term care setting? You know, I I have always supported and will continue to support people aging in place as long as possible. Um, yes, I, I represent the long-term care sector, but it doesn't mean that I think everybody needs to go into long-term care. I think that a lot of the time things can be managed safely and effectively at home. And your home environment is the best place for you. We know that transitions of care, especially for somebody who has dementia, are challenging. You know, they, they have to get used to a new place, a new routine, new staff. They're not used to having people perhaps wake them up. They're not used to having people help them bathe, or they're used to a loved one helping them with their activities of daily living or a healthcare provider in their own environment, which is preferable. But we have to take into consideration that dementia is a progressive degenerative disease that eventually, as time progresses, it not only affects memory and thinking and cognition, it starts to affect the physical self as well. People become less able to mobilize independently. They require more and more assistance with things like bathing and feeding and dressing even. Keep in mind that when we're talking about an older population, they may have a spouse that's in the same position as they are where they they may have difficulty with helping those things like dressing and bathing. I don't want to see a frail 80-year-old woman who is five foot one and weighs 100 pounds trying to get a six foot 200 pound man with dementia, her husband, in and out of a bathtub on her own. There's, there's risks there as well. So I think there sometimes becomes a point where long-term care is necessary because the ability to meet the physical needs of a loved one with dementia become insurmountable, that it's it just becomes more dangerous, actually, for the person who's providing care. And, and again, not always the case. Some people manage to stay at home um, until the end and with, with appropriate supports in place. But sometimes we have to recognize that long-term care is the best place. And one of those is uh, surrounding uh, safety for that resident and the family with regard to behaviors. So if somebody is developing those responsive behaviors, which can be physical, sometimes they're just verbally responsive behaviors where they'll yell or they'll swear but sometimes they become physically responsive, uh, hitting and punching. Not everybody does, like we talked about. There's some risk factors, but that can be an unsafe environment for a care provider. And so long-term care may become necessary. And your original point about the effects of isolation on our residents with dementia is profound. It's not even just residents with dementia. I see a lot of people out in the community as a consultant and have demonstrated loss in cognition over the past 18 months because they live alone 
and they don't necessarily have somebody monitoring their cognition and there's been and they're isolated because they couldn't go places maybe they don't drive anymore and so they're not actually leaving their house for extended periods of time they're not getting access to social interactions they're not getting access to physical activity maybe not access to really good meals all the things we know that are really responsible for helping preserve cognition. And so sometimes, unless we can get the appropriate supports in place for them, being in a congregate living environment like retirement or long-term care means they're going to get regular meals with wholesome foods. They're going to get regular physical activity. They're going to get social interaction. Um, I've actually seen people improve their cognition just by moving into that kind of environment because now there's all those supports in place that they were lacking. So it's it, it all really important factors when making a determination, but certainly I think the most important part is if somebody's care needs cannot be managed at home, it is time to start thinking about where is a better place for them to be. When I, I know, uh, again, from my own family experience, uh, because of the volunteer work that I had done uh, before my father's diagnosis, we were able to tap into those respite supports where we had a, a respite volunteer from the Alzheimer's Society come and take my father out for walks. We were able to have him join a day program, which coincidentally happened to be ultimately embedded in the long-term care home, a, a municipal long-term care home, where ultimately we were able to have him transferred when it became too much for us. And I would say that we're talking a lot these days, given the focus on long-term care over the last year and a half and the tragedy, I think there's a greater recognition about how do we make sure that we are building out more supports and more integrated supports and more progressive supports, both in the home environment, but also to support whatever those transitions may well be into a higher level of care setting, such as long-term care. But as we contemplate what the future of long-term care needs to look like and the future of seniors' care and what other options for congregate living, what is long-term care, what is dementia care, you know, I can't help but think, how do we build it out in a way where people feel safe and accept and know that this is, this is a, a safe and important place to be, that families feel well-supported and don't feel guilt, and that, um, it, you know, our, our staff don't have to be so focused on making everyone not feel guilty about this experience and really change the narrative and address the stigma around, around long-term care and, and around dementia care. Yes, um, our sector has had a, a tumultuous 18 months, no question about it. We did everything we could to protect them from becoming infected with the virus, but unfortunately, it was incredibly profound, the effect that the isolation had on our, our residents and then not having their loved ones being able to come in was just a double whammy. It was, it was just so much. And I think, and I'm going to beat my drum again, but the earlier we get a diagnosis, because you've just expressed it so well, the earlier we get a diagnosis and introduce these supports and introduce um, opportunities, the more somebody has the opportunity to think about what's going to happen and where they want to go and what they want to do. And it doesn't come so much as a big surprise when all of a the sudden they're in long-term care because we've hit a crisis state. And, and that, is, that happens a lot. You know, 
everything is just kind of ticking along and then we hit a crisis and now we have to do this. If we are able to, and I'm going to give an example because this was one of those scenarios that I just, uh, my heart caught in my chest for this poor woman. I saw a lady in the memory care clinic who had been having more than two years of a decline in her cognition and her family recognized it and she didn't. Her family recognized it and didn't say anything, didn't do anything about it. And by the time it came to our attention, when she came in for her consultation, she was very impaired and she was having accidents in her car. There were all these bangs and dents on her car from hitting things. Um, she was getting lost when she was driving and, and the family knew that, but they wanted to protect her and so they just kept it to themselves. So within the time span of two hours that I was doing my consult, I had to tell this lady she had dementia that's a hard thing to do to begin with. I had to tell her she couldn't drive anymore and that I needed to report her to the Ministry of Transportation, the thing I hate doing worst in the world. And I had to tell her that she wasn't safe to live at home anymore and that it was time to start thinking about where she was going to go and what she was going to do. And I mean, I, I did this as gently and as compassionately as I possibly could, but it was, it was so late in the game. Um, had she come in, several years earlier, when they first started noticing things, we could have had that gradually, you're going to have to consider whether or not you're safe to drive. And at some point when you come in, I may tell you, you know, today's the day we should probably think about retiring your license. And at some point, you may need additional care. And what does that look like for you? But I didn't have that opportunity because the family waited entirely too long. So I, I think, again, it goes back to getting resources in place to help navigate the system because sometimes people come and they, they've never had experience with Alzheimer's society. They aren't aware of the incredible programs like the day respite programs, Alzheimer's society pre-COVID and, and now um, hopefully going forward, have great programs to keep people active and keep people socially engaged with groups of like-minded individuals, which is incredibly helpful. And uh, I know I hear nothing but positive reports from these groups. And it's good for families. It's good for families to learn how to communicate. It's good for families to get a little bit of respite. There's so many benefits to it. It's so interesting because I know that ultimately our tipping point for my father was he had a stroke. And so he went in, he, he actually went in hospital, which was the worst experience that we ever had, quite honestly. We went into the hospital one day uh, while my mother and I were doing the tours of long-term care homes, quite honestly. And we found him restrained in a chair, fully exposed with a catheter. And uh, I said to the nurse that this was unacceptable. And the response was that this this, this wasn't her patient. And I said, well, this is my father. And how would you feel that if this is your father? And, and I don't think it came from a place of malice. I, I just think that in acute care settings, places where, where families often think that their loved one it would be most better cared for, there isn't the capacity to manage those behaviors and to to provide the appropriate level of support for somebody with dementia. And that was a really challenging experience for us. But we were really fortunate in that we knew where we wanted my father to go. And and this was back in the early 2000s. But, you know, I 
putting and ensuring that our, our loved ones have the supports around their needs, but also around the needs of the family, I, I think are pretty key. And we had Lisa Rate on our podcast uh, earlier this year. Her husband has um, early onset Alzheimer's, very strong uh, responsive behaviors. Her journey to find a program for him and to find a place. When we started this pandemic, we had about 34,000 people on a wait list for long-term care in Ontario. It's closer to 40,000 people today. So that notion of starting to plan early uh, you know, the supports may not be there for, for so many families. And, uh, you know, we're working very closely with government to build new long-term care homes, to build up campuses of care that have different forms of congregate living and live-in, as well as ambulatory care programs, sort of outpatient clinics and day programming. But at some point, there is a tipping point and the placement process becomes a crisis placement process. Perhaps, you know, I think would be helpful... Could you maybe discuss for our listeners, what are the common tipping points? Well, that's one of them. Hospitalization is often one. And, you know, to my colleagues in acute care, you know, kudos for the job you do. Um, They have to diagnose and manage quickly emergent situations that come in, in in the hospital. Unfortunately, one of the worst places for people with dementia is the hospital, especially the emergency department. One of the things I would always, as a long-term care physician, have conversations with residents and their families about what their expectations and goals of care are, because it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction when somebody has a change in their condition that we send them to the hospital, because a lot of times families want that because they think that's the best thing. I will argue that the best thing we can do is manage their care in the environment that they're accustomed to. Because when somebody goes into acute care, there are a lot of lights and sounds. There is no opportunity for sleep. My mother was just hospitalized a few weeks ago, and she said, how do they possibly expect you to sleep? Her, She was in the emergency department waiting for a bed. Her cubicle was right beside a set of double doors. And she said, those doors opened and closed constantly all night long. The lights were bright. There was so much talking. There were so many alarms going off. And she said, it is impossible to sleep. If you have dementia and now you're getting sleep deprived, that's going to trigger behaviors. It also can lead to delirium. So that acute confusional state, a lot of people that go into hospital with dementia develop a delirium, which can really sharpen the trajectory of the disease. You, you can decline much quicker with a delirium superimposed on a dementia. They're at much higher risk for getting pressure ulcers, pressure injuries, because they're laying on a stretcher and they don't necessarily have the staff doing turning and positioning the way they would in long-term care to take pressure off those bony prominences where skin can break down easily. They're at a much higher risk of developing a hospital-acquired infection like a urinary tract infection or VRE or MRSA, those superbugs. And it's just, it's just not a friendly environment 
for our seniors with dementia. So going to hospital can absolutely be a tipping point. You already talked about behaviors and behaviors absolutely can be a tipping point. It's very difficult for somebody to manage responsive behaviors at home, especially again, if you've got a husband and wife and the, the partner is is not able to meet the physical needs and you know fear of injury becomes serious. I'll tell you from a personal perspective, again, my grandfather had dementia, his mother had dementia, so things aren't boding well for me down the line. But when his, when my nana had dementia, my aunt had was determined she would never put her in long-term care. She said she will live with me until the day she dies, and she was doing a great job until my nana started getting up at two o'clock in the morning and wandering down to the neighbor's house and asking for a cup of coffee um, and wandering out across the street at a busy intersection without waiting for the light to change. And the tipping point was she and my grand my granddad were in the car and she said, oh, this is where I want to get out. And she opened the door and got out of the moving vehicle going at about 60 kilometers an hour and sustained some injuries. Uh, but And that was that was the point when my my granddad and my aunt said, we can't do this anymore because we're actually risking her well-being because we're not able to provide the level of safety that she requires. So those are some, and then I, I think the care needs, the other one, it, it's pretty difficult to bathe somebody. It's pretty difficult when a loved one becomes incontinent and you're responsible for incontinence care. Those are some of the, I think, the keys. When I was doing my volunteer work, one of the things that we talked a lot about was the fact that you're grieving twice. So there is the grief for the loss of the personality and the person your loved one had been. And then ultimately, you know that you at one point going to have to deal with the loss of their physical presence as well. And the role of the family member is so profoundly important in this and the, and the caregivers trying to face the stigma to facing the guilt but also grieving and uh, I always found that, that that really anchored our family certainly in understanding that we needed to go through that grieving process as well and, and to acknowledge what that was. Dr. Collins is a proponent of aging in place for as long as possible. However, she notes that one of the telltale signs of the need to move into a long-term care setting is the inability to perform daily functions alone, functions such as getting dressed or bathing. As dementia progresses, safety may also become a factor. Aggressive or responsive behaviors towards loved ones or caregivers can be another key indicator of the need for an individual with a dementia diagnosis to transition into a long-term care support setting. Dr. Collins also notes that moving into a long-term care or congregate care setting can actually boost cognitive function in those living with dementia. This comes as a result of better nutrition and support, more socialization, and regular physical activity. Dr. Collins and I also discussed the role of family members and family caregivers and their role in supporting the ongoing care of individuals with dementia, both at home and in long-term care settings. We also discussed the need to support our family caregivers in 
supporting their own health and well-being so that they can meet the challenges of their loved ones as they transition into a new care environment. You know, one of the things that uh, has come out over the last 16 months is certainly in in Canada as a debate around long-term care homes and what the real underlying issues have been relative, especially because of the tragic loss of life during the COVID-19 pandemic. We've had the benefit on this podcast of speaking with colleagues in the United Kingdom and in Australia and in the United States. And there is this issue, though, around around the role of ownership around this. And, you know, it's it's a very political issue. And can you maybe talk to us as as family members are thinking about where to transition their family members into a long term care residence in a care setting? Should ownership play be a factor in their considerations? What what should they be thinking about when they're when they're doing their ranking or their their tours to determine what are those options and and what options should they be prioritizing for their loved one? Yeah, it's a great question, Donna, and it's a loaded question because there has been so much negativity surrounding for profit ownership. And as you know, uh, we produced a report called The Perfect Storm. Um, We convened a panel of experts across the country uh, at at the end of the first wave to try and figure out, was there something we could be doing different? Were Were there lessons to be learned that we hadn't learned yet? And that report spoke to less about ownership and more about, you know, the model of home. We have older homes. There are older homes in in the for-profit industry. We've been trying for a decade now to get the licenses to rebuild because we have a lot of homes that need to be rebuilt. Ultimately, I can tell you, as somebody who has been working, you know, 16 hours a day, seven days a week for the first I think for the past two months, it slowed down. But for the first and second wave, you know, everybody in this industry was just working nonstop around the clock. And it was very disheartening to me to hear the uh, debate about for-profit and not-for-profit ownership status because I sat in meetings with our senior leadership team, with our operations team, with our board of directors, whose number one philosophy was do what's right for our residents. It wasn't about saving money. It wasn't about making money for shareholders. It was about providing the best possible care for our residents. When you think about dementia care units where people wander because they're secured units, so they are free to wander, which they should be allowed to do because that's meeting a need for a dementia resident. But how do you stop a wandering resident in the interest of infection prevention and control? Those people who are not able to wear a mask, who don't remember that they need to wash their hands and don't understand why they have to be isolated. So um, I, I can tell you that I know from working with other organizations, other operators, and on regional tables with for-profits, municipal homes, not-for-profits, we all had one solitary goal, and that was to protect our residents. So the answer to your question is for-profit status shouldn't matter. What should matter is how you feel when you go into a home. When you go to do your assessment, to do your tour, how does that home make you feel? How are the staff treating the residents? Are they engaging the residents? Are they happy? Are the residents happy? Do the staff seem satisfied? Difficult right now because staff are 
completely burned out. It has been a very long 16 months for them as well. Um, They have had to undergo an awful lot in this time. And I I can't say enough about our PSWs and our nursing staff and our dietary staff across the sector who have worked, we've heard tirelessly, but I'm going to say it again, who have worked tirelessly throughout this pandemic to provide the best possible care. So take into consideration that they have some healing to do, but get a sense of the home, get a sense of family members from residents who live there, talk to the residents, talk to the families, figure out if this is somewhere that you'd feel comfortable having your mom and dad or your husband or your wife or your brother or sister or whoever you're you know, needing to move into long-term care. It needs to be a home-like environment. It needs to be engaging. It needs to have activities that will be meaningful for the residents. One of the things you talked about that was done really well, um, that our government has done exceptionally well with the introduction of the Behavioral Supports Ontario program in long-term care. And these are people who are trained to get the best possible histories for residents with dementia, to understand who they are and who they were, and help develop programs and activities that are specific to that individual because we can't, there's no cookie cutter approach to care. We have to individualize care for our residents because you're an individual, I'm an individual. We may not like the same thing. So our residents aren't going to like the same thing. So we really have to individualize care. And that's another thing that people should be looking for rather than paying attention to the profit status of a company. It's a bit of a political football where there are those who want to use it. When in fact, this is a time when what we really need from everybody is leadership. We want to be fighting for things on behalf of our residents so that they can thrive wherever their home is. And uh, the ownership issue should not be a factor. So if you could wave a magic wand, if you could wish for three things, what would you wish for in terms of being able to meet not only the existing demands, but the demand that's coming? Ooh, only three. Well, A, of course, I would wish for more staff and staff that are exceptionally well-trained in managing dementia um, and meeting the needs of the dementia residents. I would wish for environments that are conducive to good living for our residents. And, you know, I know as we as we start to look at national standards for long-term care, one of the things that concerns me is a focus on tighter regulations, more inspections, more, uh, more stringent regulations. That is not what we need. And one of the things that I've I've been complaining about, and Donna, I know you've heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again. One of the things that distresses me the most is going into a home and seeing staff with their tablets checking off their, their tasks that they needed to complete for the day. And by creating more legislation, you create more of that mentality of tasks that need to be completed. We don't need task-oriented staff. We need people-oriented staff. We need staff who don't have to worry about checking off a series of tick boxes to meet legislative requirements or regulatory requirements. We need staff who want to sit and talk to the residents, who want to engage in activities with the residents, who want to help them enjoy their lives. And we know in models similar to the butterfly model where staff are more focused on the residents and engaging the residents, they 
report more satisfaction with their job. I think one of the things right now uh, with with job satisfaction and the, the reason we're losing staff and the reason it's difficult to recruit new staff is because they're coming into this over-regulated environment where they have so many things they have to do in a finite period of time. Let's get away from that and let's not focus. At, yes, we need checks and balances when it comes to safety of residents, but if we would just allow staff to be able to enjoy the residents and not focus so much, I, you know, you've seen it um, on social media previously where staff are allotted seven minutes to bathe and dress a resident and get them down to breakfast. That's ridiculous. We need individualized plans of care for those residents who, you know, if you came in and woke me up at six o'clock in the morning to get me dressed and get me bathed and take me down to a dining room to eat breakfast, I'd probably be responsive too because I don't eat breakfast I, I want to get up when I want to get up. I may want to eat a bagel and a cup of coffee sitting in my chair looking out my window watching the birds. That's what we need to do. We need to, again, this goes back to BSO, being able to identify individual needs, learning about that person, who they are and what makes them happy and what, what we can engage in conversation that's going to bring them to that place that they were happiest. That's how you resolve behavioral issues, not by medicating, not by over-regulating, by meeting the resident where they are at this point in time. So that would be my third wish. Wow. And it's, you know, it's how do we make this about people? And, you know, I used to uh, run a large children's mental health organization and a lot of parallels actually in between children's services and, and seniors care because it, it really had defaulted to um, protection and a lot of reporting. But Where's the so what? How do we focus on outcomes? How do we balance that tension between living and caring? And we are not in an acute care setting. And, it, you know, certainly it's to your earlier comments about the isolation and the, the lockdown that we went through in, in virtually every country with regard to seniors care and locking out our residents, uh, it was about protecting. And that was, it was about protection. And, you know, we have this, unique opportunity in this moment of time, collectively, to come together, not to accept the status quo, not to lose this opportunity to drive the change we need. We have the baby boomers who are now, you know, the baby boom bomb is coming, as we've talked about this, who've defined public policy at every juncture in in their, their life cycle to date. This is their turn now, it's our turn, to, to challenge public policymakers, but to challenge each other, to see this as a, a, a moment for a movement to reimagine and redefine what, what aged care looks like, including where what we call long-term care fits. Where does it fit? And what is it going to look and feel like? To your point, you know, we've got our, I, I often say our baby boomers have 172 different ways to order coffee. <laughs> I don't see the younger end of uh, the, the baby boom generation accepting the status quo. And I, I think therein lies that opportunity. And, and I look forward to uh, finding that wand, that magic wand to wave it and, and make your dreams come true. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, and and you know everything is as you're as you're talking about this. I think about the lessons we can learn from Scandinavia, Denmark, where things are done so differently when it comes to long-term care. And one of the things that I've been focusing on, and it's kind of a sneak peek, but we, as you know, have to report out on all of these key performance indicators, these quality indicators, things like you know rate of antipsychotic use and and falls, and and they're important metrics. And there's and it, we certainly should not be looking at those things, um, but it doesn't have much to do with quality of life. And if I'm moving, you ask the question, what what somebody should be looking for? If I'm moving my mom into a long-term care home. I'm not looking at the rate of antipsychotics used in that home. That is not what's going to make the, the difference for me. What's going to make the difference is how happy the people are who are there. And so that speaks to me more, less about those quality indicators and more about quality of life indicators. So one of the things I've been doing for our organization over the past month is focus groups with long-term care residents to ask the following question, what brings you joy in your day? What are we doing really well that makes your day better? What are we not doing well that we need to improve on? I want it to be about how are we meeting your needs? If you were living at home, in the, if this was your home environment, would you say that you're happy? Does this feel like the way things were at home? And how can we make it like that? We have got to focus on the individual and we've got to focus on what is quality of life completely because we all want it regardless of where we live quality of life and meaning you've heard hazel mcgallion talk about purpose purpose in life is so incredibly important there's no reason that that should ever change just because our address changes Wow. And, and for our listeners, uh, Hazel McKellion is the former mayor of Mississauga, Ontario, and she's just turned 100 this year. But she served as mayor well into her 90s and is noted for being on uh, live with Regis because <laughs> she is quite a celebrity, but a great seniors advocate. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Collins. You've been so generous with your time and uh, you give me such a great sense of hope and optimism. I love that question, what brings you joy? And I, I hope that all of our listeners will will think about what brings you joy in your life and uh, let's seize that sense of optimism and opportunity and let's uh, create that movement towards joy and happiness for everyone and a joyful aging. So thank you for joining us. And I really look forward to supporting you on this new journey too. So thank you. Thanks, Donna, and thanks again for your leadership, and I look forward to the wand that you're going to be providing me with. I was so pleased to have had this opportunity to speak with Dr. Collins. Together, we certainly covered a wide breadth of topics and issues faced by seniors and their care partners today. Dr. Collins shared her perspective on dementia, long-term care reform, and aging in place. Here are four key takeaways that stood out for me. Number one, in order to better support those living with dementia, we all need to work toward reducing the stigma and debunking the common myths surrounding dementia. It's important to remember that no two cases of dementia are the same, and each individual will require a personalized treatment plan and approach to care. Number two, Quality of life needs to be more of a priority for those living with dementia. 
Dr. Collins notes that upon diagnosis, far too many people give up on the activities and social events they love. Unfortunately, self-isolation and a lack of purpose will only contribute to the progression of the disease. We need to focus on living. Number three, while aging in place is the ideal situation whenever and wherever possible, Dr. Collins acknowledges that physical disabilities, hospitalization, or aggressive responsive behaviors are often key indicators for families of the need to transition a loved one into a long-term care setting. And number four, Ontario is in need of long-term care reform and significant policy and program changes to improve care for seniors and our aging population. Dr. Collins emphasized the need for more staff who are not only highly trained in meeting the needs of those living with dementia, but staff who are also focused on providing people-centered care so that individuals and residents can lead more active, engaged, and purposeful lives in our long-term care settings. Thank you for listening to Coming Up Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate the show five stars, and please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Our next episode will be airing on September 14th.